This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Now on Philadelphia's Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. A closer look. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. I hope you've uh, found out about us uh, at this point. We're here each and every week talking about, well, substance abuse um, very often, but also uh, a whole range of behavioral health issues now. Program sponsored by Retreat, which uh, specializes in behavioral health. I want you to uh, bring your brain with you today because that's what we're going to be talking about. Our brains, it's remarkable that something so central to uh, our very existence is so very little well-known, as a matter of fact. Um, Taking a look at the brain, it turns out that there, at least in so far as our guest is concerned, there's not an easy way to look at the, the brain. There's um, not a right or wrong or black or white. Maybe that's why we call the brain gray matter, after all. Our guest is Dr. Gail Saltz. Uh, Dr. Saltz is an associate professor of psychiatry at New York Presbyterian. Uh, she, you've probably seen her many appearances on television, network television, talking about her specialty. And she is a much-published author. Her latest book is called The Power of Different. The Link Between Disorder and Genius. It's a fascinating uh, book and a real a real eye-opener. Uh, Dr. Soltz, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, your, uh, your subtitle, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, that's, that's one of those uh, phrases that we, we've heard so much about. In the original form, it was between it's, uh, creativity or genius and insanity, right? That's right. That's the the, the original form of that. Let, let us let's begin at the beginning because this again is a fascinating idea, the way our our brains are still so very mysterious to us and how we try to categorize everything that goes on. Tell us why you set out to write this book. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I've been a psychiatrist in, in practice in uh, Manhattan for you know, over 25 years, and I see, because I'm in this area, I think, honestly, I, I, I've had many very high-functioning patients who are, in in various ways, uber-successful in some way, um, and yet they're clearly, you know, they come in to see me because they really are suffering, and they, they clearly have um, a mental health issue that they are presenting with, and I was very struck over the many years of how many people who clearly have extraordinary ability and very particular abilities, types of abilities that were clearly connected to the very mental illness that they were presenting with. I also, at the same time, have been running a series for many years at the 92nd Street Y here, which is like a cultural center, um, uh, to take a look at iconic geniuses and sort of what makes them tick, historic people that have changed their field in some way called psychobiography. And I really have not been able to find someone, you know, fascinating who really changed the face of their field that I wanted to cover that didn't turn out to have a mental illness or a learning disability. And I was very struck by that. And I've long been interested in the area of genius in, in general and creativity, um, my younger brother is a Nobel Prize winner, one of the youngest at age 41, for his discovery of dark energy and the um, accelerating universe. And so I grew up with someone who, you know, has extraordinary um, intellectual ability and creativity. 
Um, and so that has always been an interest of mine. But I'm also very cognizant of the fact that we still polarize mental illnesses into it being sort of like a death sentence, you know, terrible, very upsetting, um, as if, you know, as if this sort of puts you out of the race of life, if you will. And parents often delay in in acknowledging that their children are having symptoms. In fact, the delay is two to five years between the development of symptoms in the first place and seeking treatment, which is too long. Um, and, and, and part of that is because of the terrible stigma still associated with mental health issues. And I, I thought that it was important for the public to understand that it is a very complex and while people who are struggling should absolutely have and seek treatment, and it will only make their suffering less so, at the same time, there are, there, there's a great body of data, of neuroscience data, that really supports this connection between very particular disorders and very particular abilities or strengths, often more so than the population that does not have a mental health issue, and that um, is important for people to understand. We're not telling normal people, and I hate—I know you hate the, the, the notion of normal, quote unquote. But but folks without any demonstrable emotional or psychological problems, you're not consigning them to a life of no creativity, are you? Absolutely not. So, um, you know, it, my my issue with normal, first of all, to say is that at some point or another, close to half of Americans will meet criteria for a diagnosable mental health condition. Only half? Only half? Yep, only half. (laughs) But, you know, per like, you know, the diagnostic and statistical manual. But, but if you think about that, we, you, it's hard to call something abnormal if, if half of people have it, you know what I'm saying? So there's tremendous individuality uh, in the brain. Um, That's because we have, you know, over 100 billion neurons in the brain and over 100 trillion synapses or the place where neurons connect in the brain. And, you know, when, you, when you're talking those kinds of numbers, there's, there's a lot of variation. Um, and obviously that variation can be extreme enough that it potentially produces symptoms. But I think that rather than thinking about normal and abnormal, you know, it's, it's, it's more helpful to think about how different, how many brain differences there are. And if the difference is too different, then yes, you may present as someone who is ill. Um, the, uh, and, and in terms of um, people who do not have any of this kind of wiring or do not present with a mental health issue, of course they can be both creative successful, and I might add, genius. Um, It's just that when you look at the data, what is clear is this concept of the inverted U-shaped curve. By that, I mean that on one end of the curve are people who have no mental health issue whatsoever, and it's not that they can't be all those things. They can, but they are less likely to than someone who actually has a mental illness but is mild mildly to moderately ill. So it is in that spot where they're at the top of the curve that they are they have a mild to moderate amount of whatever the issue is. Now when you become very ill, when you have severe illness, you again drop off that curve and you are much less likely to be able to manifest creativity and certainly genius and the reason 
is not that the potential isn't there because the wiring is still there as it is for the mild to moderate people, mm -hmm. but you have to have a combination of the wiring and ability with the organizational ability, which requires well, a certain amount of wellness, to produce and behave in ways such as you can implement your plan, yeah. right? You might have a creative thought, but if you can't do anything with it, sure. it's not going to serve you. So, um, so that's why treatment's important, but very ill, not so good, not ill at all, obviously good <laughs> from many perspectives, um, including potentially creativity and genius, just less likely to than that that population that has mild to moderate. Well, you know, that's fascinating. I mean, in the description you just uh, outlined, it sounds not unlike any kind of uh, deficiency that you might have, physical deficiency, for instance, which limits you in one sense. You then use whatever capabilities you are not impaired, and they become stronger. Is that what you're saying? In other words, if my left well, leg, if my left leg is weaker. You know, if right. I have a problem with my left leg, it's been injured or something, right. I compensate by making my right leg stronger. Right. So the answer is yes and no. So yes, in the sense that there are certain strengths that may be visible, for example, uh, resilience or empathy um, that, or, or, or the ability to uh, persevere that may have to do with the suffering that was initially caused by, you know, the, the deficit in terms of the mental health issue. So those strengths could be something that, as you said, your right leg is strengthening. You know, those could be strengths that are strengthened by having a deficit in a different area. But many of the strengths, and I would argue most of the strengths, don't have to do with that. They really have to do with the fact that the brain in its complex wiring when when one area is different, it also means other areas are different. And those differences are often the differences that produce the strength. So it really has to do with connections between different structural areas of the brain and um, and whether the, you know, sort of uh, deficit, let's say, in connectivity that's leading to that symptom, but also produces strength in a different area, which it was also connected to, um, and that's why we see the strength. So it has more to do with, you know, sort of the unique wiring of the brain and what comes together, what what part and parcel comes together with the wiring that unfortunately produces the symptoms. Dr. Gail Saltz is our guest. She is the author of The, the Power of Different, the link between disorder and genius. You know, I think one of the beginning problems, at least according to your book here, is that our need to classify and name everything. Uh, is that part of what stands in the way of us better understanding what this link is? Um, well, I hate to come back with my yes and no answer again, but yes and no. Well, you're, a um, you're a psychiatrist, in, Doc. That's yes, exactly. Um, so the fact is, right now, our classification system, otherwise known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, number 5, um, is sort of the best we've got. And it does serve some purposes in that it allows, um, it allows clinicians to speak to each other in sort of a shorthand, like this is what's going on, and this is, you know, you can, you can presume I'm talking about sort of this collection of symptoms and this kind of prognosis and this kind of um, plan we want to be thinking about for this patient. Probably even more importantly than that, 
it allows clinicians to speak to insurance companies. Yeah, who's going to pay um, for it? And uh, without which there is no reimbursement and there is, no you know, it is impossible for people to get treatment. So that actually, that shorthand, if you were, that, that better, that classification we have now is important. It really actually is important because um, any impediment to treatment is a major problem. But I would say that probably in the future, you know, at some point, this will not be the way that we classify um, problems, uh, mostly because even today, clinicians don't treat diagnoses. They treat symptoms. So even though your diagnosis might be, say, bipolar disorder, when you present, the the clinician is going to treat you with something that is, yes, a mood stabilizer, but then also address your current symptoms. So are you depressed? Then we need to have a mood stabilizer, potentially also some treatment for depression. Mm -hmm. So medication for that or psychotherapy or both um, versus if you have bipolar disorder and you present and you're what's called hypomanic or the other pole of the mood, highly irritable or grandiose or whatever. And then, then it would be a different set of treatments. So really what I'm trying to say in shorthand is clinicians treat symptoms and symptoms are probably where it's at in terms of what's going on in the brain. And we just haven't gotten to a place in, in research and understanding of this most complex of all organs of how we can quantify and understand in a, in a more purely symptom-based model. All right, let me stop you right there because we're going to take a first break and come back and uh, get deeper into the power of different, the link between disorder and genius with our guest, Gail Saltz. Stay with us. This is Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Our guest is uh, Dr. Gail Saltz. Uh, Dr. Saltz has written a book called The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. Fascinating look at the way our, our brains work and how it's far too simple to overclassify people and pigeonhole them. Um, doc, Dr. Saltz, you talk about the, the, the difference between a disorder and a difference in brain behavior, brain activity. Make that distinction for us. How, how, what is the difference between a disorder and just a difference? Well, I, I think if you look at almost, almost all mental health issues, you'll find that really the feeling states and the behaviors associated with them are, you know, if they were greatly reduced, they are... Normal. I mean, in in that you know, most every so most everybody is sad sometimes. That that you know that is a normal emotion. Most everybody is nervous or anxious sometimes. Most everybody's distractible sometimes. Um, most you know, in, in other words, the point being, um, these these things are all part of the normal human experience and 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 brain wiring and. And as I mentioned earlier, we have such individuality because there are so many billions and trillions of, of essentially neurons and synapses and structures in the brain um, that there's a lot of variation from normal person to normal person. And, um, and so I think what's important to understand is that when a Let's say, let's just take sadness. It's normal to be sad. In fact, if somebody is never sad, they're probably, you know, like repressing or, you know, trying, defending against that feeling. Um, but if someone becomes sad every day 
for many weeks, maybe even months. And in, in addition, their sadness becomes so extreme that essentially it's debilitating. And I, I mean, I can list a whole other host of symptoms that go with that, but let's just say the normal sadness that someone might feel becomes more severe and it truly interrupts their ability to function. And that, that's the key right there. Then we're probably talking about a disorder. And, and, and that is, you know, someone's, I, you know, I, sometimes I think people look at, you know, my field and say, oh my goodness, you know, everybody, um, you know, why, why are you treating all these people? Um, isn't it, you know, shouldn't it be okay to be sad, to be these various things? And the answer is yes. And we don't want to overtreat people. You know, if someone close to you that you love dies, it's normal to be aggrieved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no question about it. Um, but if your grief persists for months and months and months to the level that you cannot sleep, you cannot eat, you cannot work, you cannot function, um, then you then, have a, then you have a disorder. Then you have major depression. Absolutely, and well, it deserves treatment. Well, we, I mean, we, we have a tendency uh, to um, medicalize everything. Uh, that's going on. Does that account for what I read is a spike in, in general uh, anxiety and depression in our culture right now? Is it just because we now take behavior that, for the most part, people can deal with because they go through these things and turn it into a pathology? Is that going on? Well... What I would argue is that um, in this country, two different things are going on. One is, to your point, there are probably people who are getting psychiatric medication who perhaps don't need psychiatric medication. And and that is because um, they maybe present to a non-psychiatrist um, and, you know, they go into their internist um, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm really having a tough time, and they cry, or they, you know, they they're upset, and their internist says, okay, here's an antidepressant. Uh, so they're they're it's you know, and and people who are not feeling good feelings and have difficulty tolerating those not good feelings would like something to feel better, um, and they think this will make them feel better. You know, I would argue somebody who's really having a tough time should dip into psychotherapy, which would help them feel better without the side effects and the medical issues associated potentially with medication. So there are, there are people, kids and adults, who are being medicated because their situation has been medicalized and it may not be deserving of it. However, there's also a huge number, probably a bigger number, of people who actually are struggling with a true mental health disorder and are not getting treatment not getting medication or any other kind of treatment because they're either having difficulty judging that, in fact, a mental health issue is what they're having, and the reason for that could be because they don't know much about mental health issues or uh, because judgment is impaired right. when you're undergoing a mental health issue. So your ability the, to self-reflect and say, yeah, I think I'm really depressed. Yeah, it's one of the cool, um, it's one of the is cool. impaired. So if no one around them is saying that, if, 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 if there's a lot of stigma associated with the whole issue, mm-hmm. you know, I should just be able to pull myself out of this, you know, I don't really acknowledge I have this, then you're probably not getting any care. So there are many more people for whom 
there are psychiatric issues going on and they're not getting care and they could be getting care and there's real consequence associated with not getting care as in you know a 15 percent mortality rate with major depression um as in from suicide Mm -hmm. um uh, you know, loss of relationships in life, loss of jobs in life. You know, depression is the number one source of disability in this country. Um, and so there, there, there are consequences, including not getting treatment raises the likelihood, even if at some point you do get better, it raises the likelihood of relapse again. So there are lots of reasons to get treatment, but more people don't than probably do. Yeah, it's the, it's the cruelest irony of uh, mental uh, disorders is that the thing you would m- rely upon to straighten this stuff out is the thing that, of course, is giving yeah. you a problem. The Power of Different, the link between disorder and genius. That's the name of the book by our guest, Gail Saltz. We have more with Dr. Saltz straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Hi, welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. Our guest, Dr. Uh, uh, Gail Saltz, the author of, among many other books, by the way, uh, The Power of Different, and that's the, where she examines the link between disorder and genius. And there are, um, Doc, a whole lot of very famous examples of people who had emotional disorders, mental disorders, who were incredibly uh, not only creative but successful and now famous. T- tell us a few of the examples you uh, examined or took a look at for the book. I'm sorry, say that again? I didn't hear quite. S- some, some of the people that uh, over uh, in the past that you've taken a look at who have had emotional um, disorders. Oh, yes. So, um, so actually, for the purposes of the book, um, because I, I really hope to help people understand uh, what the experience is like of living with, you know, one of these disorders. Um, so I did, I did two different things. Of course, I talked about some historic figures like um, an Ernest Hemingway or uh, Vincent Van Gogh or um, uh, an Albert Einstein and, you know, sort of what, you know, some of the features that appeared to be going on with them and, and, and the link specifically uh, from a hardwiring, you know, brain perspective to their particular abilities. And I also um, looked at um, people that I interviewed and talked with um, who, you know, some of whom you would recognize today and some of whom you you might not know about, but, you know, really uh, did extraordinary things. So, um, you know, David Sedaris, was very open in talking about his anxiety and OCD, and people will know about him, and of course he uses that material in his writing extensively, but it's also um, because of his anxiety and OCD, he's quite the perfectionist, he is a frequent rewriter, um, he is very driven, he is extremely structured, um, these are all features actually of anxiety and OCD, so he you know, gets up, he, he sets a time for himself, he will write during this time, he does not you know, move from that at all. Um, and, and so those all fit in. But another example would be um, Dr. Beryl Benesarath, who has um, extreme dyslexia. Uh, back in the days when people, you know, really didn't recognize dyslexia, so they would think, oh, she's a lazy student, or, um, or she's not too bright, or um, actually English was her second language, so, you know, she must not really be doing well with English. Um, and, you know, none of those things were true. Uh, she worked extremely hard. Um, she figured out what I call workarounds, other ways that she 
could learn material through pictures, through graphs, and so on. And she was actually extremely bright, which is a feature of um, many people with dyslexia. There, there is not a connection between intelligence, IQ, and this learning disability. And uh, she through a combination of very hard work and some connections, um, was able to get herself into medical school. And when she was doing rotations on the radiology service, she saw that um, she was looking at x-rays and would see things that would sort of almost magically pop out of the radiograph and be very, very visible to her. And then um, she would... Uh, the radiologist said, oh, now I see what you're talking about. But the radiologist didn't see it until she pointed it out. Um, the radiologist at some point pulled her aside and said, you know, you really, you have some unique ability here. I, I don't really understand it, but you should really think about going into radiology. And um, she did. And she went on to become the physician to discover how to diagnose Down syndrome in utero mm -hmm. um, using ultrasound. Well, let me interrupt. And has let, let published me, many papers, many books. Yeah. Well, so let me ask. Let me ask the question: Had her dyslexia been identified earlier and dealt with? In other words, I hate to use the word cured, but ceased to be a disorder. Would she have gone on to this kind of success? I would argue no. Um, in the sense that clearly there was something about the visual, um, basically the wiring that made it difficult for her to process and see what are called phonemes or parts of words, mm -hmm. which is a primary problem in dyslexia. That wiring, which occurs on one side of the brain, also goes part and parcel with wiring on the opposite hemisphere of the brain that has to do with visual spatial abilities. And so people with dyslexia often have wider spatial attention. They take in more of the spatial environment around them and see it with enhanced visual spatial, basically, strengths, their ability to see things, 3D, um, uh, you know, organized patterns, um, they recognize what are called impossible figures, you know, that are on pieces of paper and assess visual-spatial relations much faster than other people. Well, then, and this, um, this heightened ability to discern patterns and see things in this visual-spatial way are really what made her mm -hmm. be able to see these things on radiograph and ultimately, you know, translate in this into the work that she did. Well, it if that's all true, and obviously uh, in this case it certainly was, uh, wouldn't that change the way, for instance, someone like you goes about treating a patient? I mean, if on the one hand, in this case, a specific case, a disorder, dyslexia, led to this heightened ability in this other field, ethically, I, what would be the? Why would you treat the dyslexia? Uh, aren't you worried about worried about eliminating potential? So that's a great question because, of course, many people who are very aware of this link, particularly people who are who have what's called bipolar disorder, um, there's you know the link in bipolar disorder is to incredible um, if what's called a flight of ideas. Um, so a, a, an unusual number of highly creative, innovative, out of the box thoughts mm -hmm. that come very quickly, um, and that is 
why, actually, if you look at groups of, of high-end writers um, and musicians and artists, for that matter, you have an unusually high population of people with bipolar disorder. And some of those people become very concerned about being treated, for example, with a mood stabilizer, because they're like, I'm going to lose my creative edge. And so here's the, here's the deal, basically, with this wiring. Treating does not change their wiring in terms of the strength. So it doesn't go away. Um, but you may not be able so, to find it as readily. No, 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 that's, that, that should not be. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing to suggest that should be true. Okay. Um, so, for example, with dyslexia, you know, obviously operating in this world, being able to read is, is much easier and much better for many academic pur- pursuits um, than not. So you do, but what you do, actually what's interesting is when you teach somebody with dyslexia to read, they, they don't, if you look at the wiring, they don't acquire it in the same wiring pattern as people who already can read. They actually just sort of rewire another area and use that. Um, but it doesn't change the wiring in their visual spatial area, and so they don't really lose that strength, so to speak. Um, when it comes to something like bipolar disorder, I would have to say that while it's possible that treatment would, and hopefully some of the aim of treatment, right, is to slow down your thoughts so that you can function, um, because when you're hypomanic or manic and you have these incredibly rapid thoughts, they actually impair your ability to function if they're so rapid and they come along with other symptoms. So you do want to take someone's mood back to what's called euthymic or normal mood and might that slow some of the thoughts that are have some potential innovative thoughts in there? The answer is yes, but the data seem to show, so maybe we take the top 1% or 2% off. However, no one stays just mildly hypomanic. That is not the nature of the illness. So you either go up into, you know, full-fledged mania, which means you have psychotic thoughts and basically usually are so ill you derail your life in some way. You blow up relationships, you blow up your job, you spend money you don't have, you acquire sexually transmitted diseases having unprotected sex with people you don't, you know, you shouldn't be. Like there are, there are real problems and, or you become depressed horribly depressed, potentially suicidally depressed. So the lost time and productivity, and remember I talked about that U-shaped curve being so seriously ill that you can't take the creative thought that you had and implement it, those become real factors. So when we look at the overall trajectory, even if you nip off that top 1% or 2%, you're still overall going to remain, A, a more creative person with more potential in that arena, just based on the fact that you have bipolar disorder. Even if it's treated, you definitely still have those, those, those strengths with you. And it's more important that you keep sort of your life on track and your ability to implement the ideas that you have than that you have that, wow, one other thought. Dr. Gail Saltz is our guest. We're talking about her book, The Power of Different. When we come back, I want to talk uh, in the final segment, uh, Dr. Saltz, a a little bit about autism um, and uh, what kind of um, advice we can give parents who are on the lookout for the, the differences in their children and whether they are potential disorders. Straight ahead. Don't go away. This is Recovery Radio. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. It's been it's been a real treat, and, and, and we really haven't done it justice in the time we have to discuss uh, Gail Saltz's book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. Um, in this final segment, uh, Dr. Saltz, let's, let's talk about a couple of things that are, you know, everybody's an armchair psychologist or a psychiatrist nowadays. We see behavior, and I guess we want to sound intelligent or something. Uh, suddenly, everybody's on some sort of spectrum particularly with, with the notion of autism. For, explain to us what what does a spectrum mean? Aren't we all on the spectrum somewhere? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, a spectrum just means, you know, the word spectrum really just means, you know, so, you know be- between somewhere between very, very, very mild and very, very, very severe. Somewhere in there, <laughs> essentially, is what we're talking about. But when we talk about autism spectrum, we're talking a very, about a very particular kind of spectrum, and that is uh, an impairment in relating to others, an impairment in reading other people's faces and socially understanding what it means, socially understanding what all kinds of things mean, um, and therefore, and, and, and in return, difficulty expressing how, you know, in relating to others. So reading and expressing and relating to others, that's social capacity. That is what is impaired when we talk about autism. But autism can occur in a very, very mild way, which we used to call Asperger's disorder. You know, we, we would say, oh, that kid has Asperger's, meaning they have very mild features of autism. They're socially a little impaired. Um, but also many of those people happen to be, and this is the wiring that comes with it, uniquely bright, either in the math arena or in the verbal English arena, basically. But, you know, you think about uh, savants often um, are, are mildly autistic. Now, we don't call it Asperger's anyway. We call it mild autism but also our savants. They have this accounting ability, this numeric or mathematical ability to, you know, think about Rain Man, you know, calculate everything in their heads of, uh, you know, extraordinary proportions, you know, that no one can do. Um, and But they can be very bright in other ways, too. Um, but, of course, unfortunately, autism can occur you know, mildly, moderately, and severely at the most severe end of the spectrum are kids who, you know, have no verbal abilities, cannot speak, um, you know, cannot communicate in in any sort of way, um, cannot relate or doesn't seem aware of other people, um, you know, may have, um, you know, sort of all day long these perseverative behaviors, a very repetitive pattern of behaving, and, you know, it seems like you can't get to them. Um, so, so that's what's meant by this spectrum. But the unifying factor is this impairment in relating to others. Let's take uh, the final couple of minutes we have here now and uh, see if you can give us some guidance for 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 parents who are looking at their sure. children growing up, worried. Sure. First well, all, people. First of all, I should say in that spectrum, by the way, of autism mm-hmm. is are these strengths, which are the ability to classify objects. Um, to uh, construct patterns, to see things in greater detail, um, to be comfortable repeating things with accuracy. So, the, so people with autism often, for example, would make fantastic uh, computer coders that you know look have to look at patterns and pick out a mistake, something that maybe somebody else would be too bored to do accurately. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about: of this yin and yang of mm-hmm. these problems. And so, what's important 
in terms of the future is, A, recognizing when there is an issue going on because the earlier you evaluate and treat, the more functional the person can stay and more the more that they can utilize their potential strength. And then there is identifying that strength. So in kids that may be exposing them to things that they seem interested in or to many things so they can find the interest um, and to allow enough time in their day, even though you are treating them, to what I call the 80-20 rule. Yeah, 20% of the time you want to lend to treatment, you know, and helping them shoring up the weakness. But 80% of the time you want to help them be able to be immersed in their strengths and build essentially, you know, a talent is not... Um, does not really come from just having it hardwired there. One must work it. Um, so being able to, that means being able to be exposed to it, to repeat it, um, to work with a teacher, for example. Um, I advise parents this all the time to, um, if, they're, if they know about their child, uh, this is their strengths, this is their weakness, to be able to communicate with the teacher, you know, I know you're going to have this test or this project in this way. But as you can see, you know, because my child has this issue, it would be hard for them to show what they know in this format only. Is there any other kind of format that you can help, you know, them to use to show what they really know? So we, right now our educational systems are, are really uniform. You know, everybody's supposed to jump through the same mm-hmm. hoop. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't fit with a population where half of them will have an issue that, you know, that that particular hoop doesn't work well for. Yeah. Um, so being able to, you know, communicate and individualize a little more with with not just attention to the weakness, but also attention to what their strengths may be. And if you're having trouble figuring out what that is, neuropsychological testing can be incredibly helpful. Often people are afraid to get testing. They think it'll just show them what's wrong. It doesn't just show you what's wrong. It also shows you what's right. It also shows you what your relative strengths are, and that can be incredibly useful going forward in sort of whether you're a child or an adult and you're thinking about where, you know, where should I be channeling my energies and my attention in terms of the things that are right for me, um, do work for me. And this is so important for self-esteem, which is often incredibly dashed when first presented with a mental health diagnosis. Um, But it shouldn't be because, you know, it's part of a more complicated picture. And so sometimes testing can be really helpful as well. That's a great piece of advice. Another piece of advice, if you want to know more about this, pick up uh, Dr. Saltz's book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Good luck with the book, and uh, we'd love to have you back on at some point. I'd be happy to, and thank you so much for having me today. Take care, folks. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.